Welcome to the 100th episode of Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barbara DeGraff, and I'm an astrophysicist at Western Washington University. The guest for this episode is to Spark Science what Steve Martin is to SNL. She was our first guest, a NASA rover team member, a planetary scientist, and my office mate, Dr. Melissa Rice. Back in March, days before the quarantine, we held a live show at WWU to talk about the next mission to Mars. We also reminisced about the good times, our last live show together, the Cassini Mission Wake, and the history of the Mars missions. We hope this episode will provide you with some mental escape when you can sit back and imagine traveling to the Red Planet. So welcome to a live recording of Spark Science. I'm your host, Regina Barbara DeGraff. I'm an astrophysicist here at Western Washington University. I'm super excited to introduce you to our guest. Some of you might already know her. She is WW's resident Martian, NASA scientist, associate professor in physics, astronomy, and geology, Dr. Melissa Rice. I'm gonna clap Thank for you. you. I'll <laughs> clap for me too. <laughs> so welcome back to the show. This is your eighth time, something like that. Something like that. It's been here from the beginning. From the beginning. You've seen this crawl out of the mud. From when you were recording in the Spark Museum. I was. I was recording in the Spark Museum. That's and right. And transmitting from the roof of the Spark Museum. Yes. I have out superpowers. for like a three block radius in downtown <laughs> Bellingham. <laughs> So for those of you who don't know, uh, the Spark Museum did have a local radio station. They've since separated KMRE. But now you're on the internet, so it's... That's true. Everyone in the world is <laughs> yeah. listening. Yeah, I used to look at who downloads our shows, and it would be like, one in Russia. You know, like, yeah. like one in Taiwan. And then I'm like, that's my cousin. Anyway, <laughs> it was. <laughs> But we wanted to bring you on the show today. You've been on the show multiple times. You were at the March for Science. So when we say you've been on eight times, it's not like me and you talking. It's sometimes it's events we go to. We had a wake for the Cassini mission. Do you want to right. tell the audience? They might be interested in that fun fact. Before we go to Mars, yeah, let's, let's sure. go in Before the way back. Before we celebrate the birth of a new mission, let's we'll talk, talk about, about the death. death. Yeah. yeah, the Cassini spacecraft had been orbiting Saturn for many, many years. Yeah. It was launched when I was in, I think, undergrad. Yeah. Here, at the turn of the century, I went to school here. Yeah, and it was just getting its science underway when I was an undergrad and had continued through, what, two years ago when we threw the wake. Yeah. And the mission was going to end. It couldn't continue anymore. And so then, rather than just have the spacecraft kind of fizzle out. Or just drift off into space. Or drift off into space, or, die and drift off and crash into Saturn's moon Enceladus and create a warm little pond contaminated with Earth life, potentially. The team decided to give the mission a grand finale and plunge it, kamikaze style, into Saturn. Yeah. So the spacecraft burned up through Saturn's atmosphere and transmitted what data it could on the way, deeper than we had ever probed before. Mm -hmm. And in celebration of that and the death of the mission, Gina and I threw a Irish wake style party. We for bought, bought cow lilies and everything, and we we got like we had a, a coffin. Yes. We started we, off yeah. very somber, and we had eulogies. Yep. We had local scientists come and weep. 
Yes. We wore black and veils. Yeah. Then a band came out. The David Bowie cover band. And we had a dance party. Yeah. And that episode <laughs> is on our website. If you go to sparksciencenow.com, you can also go to um, my Instagram, Spark Science. It's not Spark Science Now. It's just Spark Science. And you can see pictures from that wake. You also brought in a tiny like replica of the Mars rover, and we tied a veil over. That's, I forgot the about that. That was brilliant. Yes. We're so smart. We are the best. Speaking of the Mars rover and its sadness then, now it's happy. It's celebrating this new, you know, sibling, I would think. Yeah, that's right. Child, sibling, what would you say? I'd say sibling. Okay. Or, yeah, maybe granddaughter. Mm, okay. And I say daughter because we refer to all of the rovers as she. Right. Because they're ships of exploration. So we, we tend to speak of them when we do use gendered language as her in that tradition for maritime exploration. Yeah. So yeah, I would say this is the next generation rover. The, uh, the tiny rover that we put the veil on and that joined us for the wake of the Cassini mission. This rover is a replica of the actually twin rovers, Spirit and Opportunity which were launched towards Mars in 2003. They landed in 2004, three weeks apart on opposite sides of the planet. They were designed to last for 90 days and Spirit's mission lasted seven years yeah. and Opportunity's mission just ended last year, about a year ago. And how are you, young undergrad, how are you associated with any of these missions? When I was an undergrad, the Mars Exploration Rover Spirit and Opportunity launched and landed in my senior year. And I heard a presentation about what these rovers were doing in their first weeks on the surface of Mars. And I was, I was smitten. I said, that's what I got to do. I want to be part of Mars exploration somehow. And I knew that the missions were only supposed to last 90 days. I was a senior in college. By the time I would get to graduate school and get a chance to work on these missions, I thought they'd be long dead and over. And I'd just be working with the data while the rovers were sitting there rusting on Mars. But I applied to go to graduate school, I got in, and by the time I got there, the rovers were still going. They yeah. had long outlived their warranty by that point, but the whole six years that I was in graduate school, both rovers were still operating. Mm -hmm. the Spirit rover ended its mission my last year, but I was able to be part of the ongoing operations, part of the team of people who decided what pictures the rover was going to take, mm -hmm part of the people looking at the new images, getting downlink from the rovers every day and assessing them. And there were some times when I'd get up really early and see the data, I'd be refreshing my login to the NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory servers, looking for when the new data arrived. And sometimes I would see a new image arrive and open it up and have a pretty good confidence that I was the first person in the world to see that new image of Mars. Wow. Maybe see a new landscape on Mars. Wow. So that, you know, you don't, you don't go back from that. Yeah. So I was hooked. And then when I graduated from Cornell University with my PhD, this rover, the big one on the left, the Curiosity rover was about to launch uh, towards Mars. And that was the next generation rover. So what we're talking about today though is the next generation after that. So the granddaughter of Spirit and Opportunity. And that rover, you know, when you look at this projection of how each of NASA's Mars rovers has grown bigger and beefier, and, but the Mars 2020 rover, it actually looks exactly like the Curiosity <laughs> rover that came before. 
We don't want to get much bigger, right? I mean, the complications of making something even larger is huge, right, or no? Oh, yeah, because you have to, you have, to have a bigger rocket. Yeah. Because it weighs more, you have to get more mass off the surface of the Earth. And then, when it's hurtling through space, you want to slow it down right. so it lands on Mars with a nice feather touch. And it's really hard to land on Mars because Mars doesn't have much atmosphere. We use a big parachute, but atmosphere is so thin that there's not enough air for that parachute to slow it down. Mm. So the parachute only slows the rover down to about 200 miles an hour. And then we have to do something creative, slow down from 200 miles an hour down to maybe a couple miles an hour for a nice soft landing. The little guys, the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, those used airbags. And they were enshrouded in airbags, and the airbags bounced and bounced and bounced, and then rolled to a stop. Curiosity, and now the Mars 2020 rover, they have to use a different landing system because they're so big. These big white rovers are about 2,000 pounds, and if you were to use airbags, they would just pop the airbags and crash into the surface. What's the height? I know there's a picture of you standing next to one of these. Yeah, so the Spirit and Opportunity rovers, they are about five and a half feet tall, so about exactly my height. Mm -hmm. You know, the perfect height. The, <laughs> the big rover, the, uh, the Curiosity rover on the left, that one is about 10 feet tall. It's got a big mast, it's kind of looming over you, and it's arm that's stretched out there, just the arm itself is seven feet long, and it has a suite of instruments on the end of it that is the size of a lawnmower, and those instruments Ooh. alone weigh 200 pounds. It's so big and heavy that in the test bed after it was built here on Earth, the rover couldn't lift its own arm up, and it's designed to work in Martian gravity, huh which is about 40% of Earth's gravity. So on Mars, it can lift up the arm, no problem, because it feels 40% lighter. But here on Earth, it can't even lift its own arm. Kind of crazy. This is Spark Science, and we're talking to Dr. Melissa Rice about what the next rover on Mars will be doing the words rover poop were used. As scientists, we tell the engineers what we want and why we want it. We say we want to be able to take pictures in these number of wavelengths because we want to be able to detect these types of minerals on Mars. And then the engineers have to figure out how to make that happen. Right. So they really have the hard stuff. We just get to dream big and make demands, and they actually have to make it happen. This is a graphic of the new rover, and I'm calling it the Mars 2020 rover out of habit, and it says Mars 2020 on these slides because these slides are old, meaning that they're more than six hours old. Earlier today, NASA announced what the name of the new rover is going to be. Anyone hear what that was? A couple of people? Yeah, yell it out. Perseverance, yeah, we gotta start getting really excited about this because we're yeah. gonna be calling this rover Perseverance or Percy. Percy. 
like in Harry Potter. You had actually texted that to me earlier today, and I thought you were just giving me like encouragement. I, know. I was like really confused. I was like, perseverance. Cool, Melissa, thanks. Yeah. I'll uh, get through that class. Yeah, so, okay, so this is perseverance, and this graphic is highlighting what is different about this new rover from the previous rover Curiosity. So well, the arm is different, right? The arm it looks is like different. more of a hammer. Yeah, the <laughs> instruments on the end of the turret are different. The main difference is that sample caching system. What that is is a system for storing rocks that are drilled and collected as drill cores from the arm. And that sample caching system is going to be a system for the rover to use its arm to put a rock core into a fancy sample tube, hermetically seal it, document it, and then kind of poop it out onto the surface and leave that carefully selected rock sample in a sample tube on the surface so the rover can drive away leave that rock there, and then hopefully, fingers crossed, NASA will fund another mission to go to Mars and, and pick collect up the those poop. samples, pick up the poop, right. put them in a doggy bag, right. bring it back home. Shoot it up into a rocket. Yeah. So um, it is going to go to various sites and get all like different samples. Exactly, okay. yeah, yeah. And early on in the mission planning, NASA had all sorts of concepts for maybe we would have a fancy space bucket and we'd put all of the samples as we went along into that space bucket and then just leave that whole bucket full of the sample tubes someplace on Mars, and the next mission would just have to pick up that one thing. Mm -hmm. But that poses a lot of risks, because mm -hmm. what if the rover is collecting all of these lovely curated samples, it has the perfect cache ready to go, and then something happens to the rover? It gets stuck somewhere, it slides down a cliff, who knows what could happen? it would take those samples with it, right. and then all of that work would have been for nothing. Right. So this, what's called distributed caching, or as I like to call it, rover poop, that mm -hmm. method allows the, the rover to drop the sample, keep moving, and then it doesn't have to carry the risk of having that very valuable rock sample still in its clutches. Right. I think there was other things we wanted to talk about. Basically, what do you do now with the, the current rover? And then what do you hope to do with the next rover? Yeah, so cameras are kind of my game. Yeah. On the Curiosity Me rover. Me too. Well, I'm camera rich. <laughs> the Curiosity rover has 17 cameras. Oh, well, you're so better. So got you yeah. beat. Yeah. The cameras that I work with are the color cameras, the ones that are on top of the rover. There's a big Cyclops eye at the top. That's actually a telescope with a laser. And that is an instrument called ChemCam, or on this rover it's going to be called SuperCam, that blasts little holes in rocks with a laser. And then the telescope looks at the plasma, the glowing plasma that's emitted just for a split second after the laser zaps it. That's a technique called laser-induced breakdown spectroscopy. Right underneath, that big cyclops eye, these two eyes, those are the cameras that I work with. And they're color cameras, so they take color pictures, just like your smartphone or your point-and-shoot camera. Uh, but they can also take pictures in a number of different wavelengths of light, beyond the visible wavelengths, out in longer wavelengths that the human eye is not sensitive to. So Mars is the red planet. Mars is actually more of the brownish-orange planet. But it, it looks very monochrome in the pictures that we get. And so the colors that we prefer to take 
pictures with on Mars are the colors where Mars is actually more colorful, which happen to be at longer wavelengths than your or my eyes can see. I remember talking to you like when you first started here at Western and, and you were telling me, I want to know if there was any water on Mars at one point. I want to know if there still could be, right? Like those are the questions. Yeah, and those are questions that we have been answering in various forms for the past 10, 20 years. Mm -hmm. um, and now the questions are not so much, was there water on Mars? We have abundant evidence that there was water on Mars in different forms, but our questions now are about what were those forms like? Mm -hmm. Was that water good enough to drink? Was it neutral water or was it highly acidic? Was it fresh water or was it highly salty? Is it the kind of water that life likes to inhabit? Or was it the kind of water that would require you know, extremophiles or life forms like kind of on the edge of what we know life can sustain? Like those bears. Like the water the bears. Water bears, yeah. yes. Tardigrades. Yes, those. Love those. There was something about the wheels as well. Um, yeah, so to the trained eye or someone who's been really paying attention through all these slides, you'll notice that the wheels on this rover are slightly different than the wheels on the previous Curiosity rover. First of all, the pattern of the treads is different. And these wheels are slightly narrower as well. And the reason for that is because Curiosity's wheels, as Curiosity has been driving around on the surface of Mars for uh, the past eight years, Curiosity's wheels have a bunch of holes that have been poked in them. The rocks on Mars at Curiosity's landing site turned out to be sharper and pointier than rocks we had encountered elsewhere on Mars. And the rocks on Curiosity's landing site, that's a really old site. Those rocks have been sitting there for maybe three and a half billion years. Mm -hmm. And over three and a half billion years, the winds have been blowing and sculpting those rocks into nice pointy little pyramids. Mm. And as the rover wheel drives over that sharp pointy pyramid, it pokes holes in the wheels. So for these wheels, we've had to thicken them up uh, but to not add mass to the rover as a whole, we had to make them narrower so mm. they could be thicker. This is Spark Science, and we're speaking with NASA scientist Dr. Rice about the realism of Mars in the movies. What's the back part, the, the kind of butt The area. butt, yeah, <laughs> that is the power source. Mm, okay, that So makes the sense. big difference between this rover and the previous generation ones, like the small little Sojourner rover, the Spirit and Opportunity rover in the middle, there are none of those black, shiny solar panels. So the new rover is not solar powered. It has that big butt behind it, which is its own nuclear power source. Right. So that's called an, an RTG. It's what it really is, is a pellet of plutonium, plutonium-238. And that decays fairly quickly. It has a half-life of 88 years. But what that means is it's decaying fast enough that it's emitting a lot of heat as it decays. And that heat we can capture and convert to electricity. And that's what's used to charge the batteries. And it did show up in the movie The Martian. It did. They dug which up which takes the us to one. our pop culture section. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good segue. What is the accuracy of that movie, and what isn't? I remember we talked about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. So overall, best Mars movie ever made. 
In Mars attacks scientific accuracy. <laughs> Mars attacks, well, I mean, that's really more accurate, but we're not allowed to talk right, about that. Right. I'm sorry. <laughs> Just so, blew your cover. So from, from the perspective of a camera and spectroscopy nerd, they nailed the colors of Mars. It was really well done. It was the right kinds of brownish shades of dark and light browns, a little orange. They didn't way overdo it with the super red Mars. Right. So that was great. The color of the sky, for the most part, was great as well. It's kind of a pinkish, salmonish color sky during the day. Mm -hmm. Except, Except for... they missed the sunset. <laughs> yeah. And I think I've said this every time I, I've been I on love the show, it. but I won't yeah. let it go. Yeah. The best part about the day on Mars is the sunset, because the sky on Mars is red normally during the day because there's lots of red Mars dust in the atmosphere. But right at sunset, and also right at sunrise, that's the only time of day when briefly sunlight is traveling through a thick enough column of atmosphere that you can see the scattering processes that we see in the Earth's sky during the day. So only at sunset and sunrise for a brief period of time do you see a blue sky on Mars. And they did not get that right on the Martian. <sighs> But, you know. Not Oscar worthy. They, they did pretty well overall. Yeah. But really, the egregious thing that was wrong with The Martian was the whole premise of the whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us more about that. Yeah, so, so in the beginning of the movie, we've all seen it, but for anyone listening at home who spoiler maybe hasn't, alert. Spoiler alert. We're going to be talking about There's the a big storm on Mars. Right. Things are blowing around. You see, like, big rocks flying through the Things air. Things being stabbed. The communication tower tips over, and it blows, and it stabs Matt Damon yeah. through his suit. Yeah. That's the whole setup to the whole movie. Kind of an important plot point. <laughs> Otherwise, there's no reason to leave him stranded there on Mars. Right. So I understand why they had to do it. But the problem is Mars's atmosphere is not very thick. So there's just not much air, not many air molecules to blow around. Right. So even if the winds are howling, super high it's be speed doing winds, like this. <laughs> there's just, yeah, not enough air, there's not enough pressure because mm -hmm. there aren't enough air molecules going fast to actually push something over. So that communications tower would have been just fine. It's a really hard problem on Mars just to blow single grains of sand in the air because the pressure is so low, mm. let alone the like big hunks of debris that we see <laughs> flying around in the opening scene of the movie. I'm going to let the audience ask their questions. What did you discover in your dissertation? So in my dissertation, I worked with the Spirit Rover. And so which one was that on the? Yeah. Oh, it's the one that looked the small uh, solar the power. One. Solar power one, yeah. Solar powered rover. I guess the little and one is too. Spirit. So all of our rovers have six wheels. And as Spirit was in its second year, so already passed its 90-day warranty, but its front right wheel broke. And what that meant was that the rover, it, it was stuck. And so it was really hard for the rover to drive forward because it was kind of pushing that wheel into the dirt. So the rover spent the next five years of its mission driving backwards, kind of dragging that dead wheel through the dirt. Oh, wow. Now, how this led to my dissertation was that it made the rover drive really slow. It seemed like a big bummer. But as that wheel was digging this trench through the dirt, it 
surprisingly discovered that there were some really strange soils buried just a couple centimeters below the surface. Right when I showed up to start graduate school, my advisor said, you want to do something with Mars? Here, figure out what these soils are about. We just got these pictures down last week. And these soils were bright white, they were bright yellow. Those are weird colors on the, the reddish, brownish, orange planet. So my thesis was mainly about analyzing those soils with that the no one had seen before. That no one had seen before, wow. trying to figure out what they were. And with the cameras, we saw that they contained a lot of water. And then the story that emerged was that these were hydrothermal deposits. So these were silica and sulfate materials, the kinds of minerals that form in places like Yellowstone. So this is our very strong evidence now for an ancient hydrothermal system on Mars. And that, that site was so exciting that it was proposed as one of the possible landing sites for the next rover, Perseverance, the new 2020 rover. Did it win? It did not. Where the Perseverance rover is going to land, it's a spot called Jezero Crater. And it's a spot where there is a beautifully preserved river delta inside an ancient, what's now dry, crater lake. It does drive just very slowly, too. So about the length of a football field, that's one good day of driving, where the rover's doing nothing but driving. So wow. really slow, like three centimeters a second. Wow. I think Julia has a question. Hi. Yeah. I have a question about the drilling. How does this drill... How deep is it going to go? And then how does that compare, if at all, to any drills on other missions? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, so the drill is really just going to scratch the surface. Um, we're talking about maybe five inches deep. That's not very deep. So, you know, if we're really interested in searching for life on Mars, ideally we'd want to go deeper mm. and go to places that are protected from the harsh UV radiation and everything bombarding the Martian surface. So if we want to find organic molecules, evidence of life, we might have to go deeper with another mission. Uh, the European Space Agency, they have a mission called ExoMars, the Rosalind Franklin rover, is scheduled to launch this year. So around the same time as this new rover, that mission, their biggest objective is to search for life as deep as they can go. Mm. And their drill is supposed to go as deep as two meters, so closer to six feet in depth. So that, that would be great. But you know, the drill that we have here is the same depth of drill as what the Curiosity rover has done. And we've seen that it can certainly go beneath you know, the top layer of dust and the top layer of the rock that's been altered. We don't have a full understanding, though, of where deep in the Martian crust might be the best place to look for life. Could you talk more about how they chose the specific crater for uh, Perseverance? Because you said there was a competition. Right, right. So there was a competition over a period of several years. Anyone in the world can propose where on Mars a rover should land. So at an initial meeting, there were 38 different sites that were proposed mostly by scientists who work in this business. But you know, we had a high school student propose a landing site. And that high school student was able to come to the meetings and present his arguments, just like all of the PhD scientists. So a really open process. I, I love how NASA does this. 
So 38 sites were proposed and vetted by the engineers. Those were down selected to eight. I had a site in the running at that level. Another chapter of my PhD thesis was on a site on Mars called Eberswalde Crater that also has a beautiful river delta preserved in it. A little more beautiful than Jezero Crater, if yeah. I have to say. But so I'm just going <laughs> to side with you. I was advocating for that site, and then they down selected from eight sites to three and Eberswalde Crater came in number four, so it didn't make the cut. Oh, wow. So then there was a lot of debate over the last three sites. And Desert Road Crater won yeah. in part because it's close enough to Midway and Northeast Sirtis that we can envision a scenario where if the rover lives as long as the previous rovers had, we can drive up and out of the crater and go to some of those other terrains as well. Was it a very heated argument? Oh, yes. It always is. People with red faces and screaming. And I've seen scientists lose their cool yeah. in this process. They're, they're passionate. We'd like to thank Dr. Melissa Rice for being our guest for episode number one and episode number 100, and always being up for anything. If you'd like to learn more about Dr. Rice's work, you can visit wp.ww.edu backslash Mars. You can follow her on Instagram at Western Martians and on Twitter at Martian underscore Mel. Spark Science is produced in collaboration with KMRE and Western Washington University. Today's episode was recorded at Western Washington University in Bellingham, Washington. Our producers are Suzanne Blaze, Robert Clark, and myself, Regina Barber DeGraff. Our audio engineers are Zarek Coakley, Julia Thorpe, and Aaron Howard. Script support by Ariel Shiley. If you missed any of the show, go to our website, sparksciencenow.com. And if there's a science idea you're curious about, send us a message on Twitter or Facebook at Spark Science Now. Thank you for listening to Spark Science.